Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artists, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. What it do, my Atlanta people? I'm so glad you're joining me on another Bright Side with Technicia, and I hope everyone's week has been going so good so far. I have been sick for these past days. First, it started off with a sore throat, then it led to a scratchy throat. Um, no fever, so thank God for that. Then this past week, I had to call it off from work yesterday because my stomach was going through some much. I don't know if it was stomach virus or not. But then my daughters were sick, so we all in the house looking at one another. My child calling me, and I'm looking like, oh, I can't help you more than I can help myself. So I'm glad to be back up, uh, ready to go get my money today. That's me. I like to make my money. That's what I do. But I'm glad that you're here with me. Glad that you've been holding on, my listeners and viewers. Um, it's wonderful to have people next to you, to stand by you, who believe in you every single day, and that's what you do. When you come on, you listen to the archives. If you listen to the replay, I appreciate you. It takes a lot to take out your time to listen to my shows. It means a lot to me, and I really appreciate that. I see the numbers and everything. I'm expecting to have a great show today. This should teach us a little bit about compassion because a lot of us don't, but it goes farther into that with health care and everything. <coughs> Excuse me, everyone. <clears throat> Obviously, I still have the call, so I'm going to go to CVS today. I'm going to get me airborne and take that. Everyone said that's a good little remedy. Need some vitamin C, and I have my orange juice in the refrigerator, so I'll be drinking some of that as well. But anyhow, keep you waiting. I am going to hit you with a few commercial breaks, maybe some songs while we get everything situated and get it together while I'm waiting on my guests. So you stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. I'm going to be right back after this, baby. You use Tearless Baby Shampoo because it's gentle on your baby's eyes. You make sure his toys don't have any sharp edges. You always test the bath water to make sure it's not too hot. You taught her what to do when the smoke alarm goes off. You make sure she wears a helmet when she rides her bicycle. You put on his sunscreen, even when he's embarrassed his friends will see. You do so much to keep your child safe. But are you using the right car seat for your child? Is your child facing the right way in the car seat? Is the seat too big or too small? How do you know when it's time to move your child into the next type of seat? Car crashes are a leading killer of children ages 1 to 13. Protect your child's future at every stage of life. For information on the right seat for your child, visit safercar.gov slash the right seat. That's safercar.gov slash the right seat. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Glad to have you back on. Just a little short commercial break. Get things loosened up, but I hope you're ready. Grab your shoes, grab your coffee, because it's going to be an interesting show to talk about. Like I said, we're going to be talking about caregiving in the medical field and everything. This is great for you healthcare providers out there. Here with me is Simon J.K. Fox. He's the Executive Director of the Ventures and Karen Foundation in Santa Barbara, California. Simon, with his wife Karen, who found the nonprofit, has built Ventures and Karen into a leader in teaching the art and practice of communicating compassion to those who are sick or injured. For 30 years, they have cultivated compassion in healthcare and have produced a replicable skill-based model for teaching compassion, which is now used in hundreds of hospitals, hospices, and nurses. At a local level, undergraduate students pursuing careers in healthcare volunteered through their service learning internship, the medicine of compassion, and have made more than 1 million visits to befriend patients in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities so that people do not have to face their illness or injury alone. President H.W. Bush recognized these efforts with his Point of Light Award in 1991. And Simon is also co-author of the book, 
but can I say a guide to visiting friends and family who are ill and co-producer of five video-based training programs on compassion, including the Medicine of Compassion, which won the 2004 International Health and Medical Media Award for the Best Video and Patient Care. Simon has served on the National Advisory Committee for the American Trauma Society, and he produced his second trauma, Train the Trainer program. And one of his latest productions will be also addresses the topic of compassion fatigue. Oxygen for caregivers is a toolkit for healthcare and emergency services professionals to guard against burnout, build resilience, and sustain compassion. Here with me today is Simon J. K. Fox. Please do call in at three four seven four two six three seven one. Welcome, Simon. Glad to have you on. Hi, Technicia. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. Thank you. Oh, good, good. I wasn't sure if this line was getting through okay. Good. Well, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it, and, and thanks for the great intro. I'm, I'm honored. You're so welcome, Alma. It's an honor to have such a man of your work here today. You have done so much, and we're focusing on the health care. We don't talk about that as much. So um, what brought your interest to this? Well, basically, this is a a work of the heart, really, um, with by my wife and myself and a, and a, a fantastic group, a, a team of volunteers and other people have gathered with us to take what is essentially the healing power of love and apply it to supporting people in in the healing process. So anybody who has been sick or injured or or is dying. We feel there's a lot more you can do for them than med- simply medical care, um, and especially those times when medicine can't do any more for somebody. Um, so we've always felt that love had a role to play in healing, as did a lot of people greater than I. Um, and we've we've tried to make it practical and teachable, and quite honestly, we've succeeded. Um, we've been doing this for over 30 years. And we found a way to actually cultivate compassion, especially in young people, so that they can use these skills to connect with their patients, with the folks in their care. So essentially we're training the next uh, generation of nurses and therapists and doctors and, and all kinds of allied health professionals on how to extend compassion to the person you're looking after. And and we say it's compassion when the other person gets it that you care. I mean, it's nice to have warm feelings in your own heart, but it's really effective. It, it goes to work when the other person realizes. In other words, you've succeeded in conveying something to them, and they finally get it. Oh, you're in my corner. I get it. And then everything changes. And that's a real healing partnership. That's where a healing partnership begins to build uh, it's now called in the in the research literature. It's now called relationship-centered care, because the re- it's the relationship that is the medium for the healing to take place. So, so that's what we've been up to for the last three decades. So. <laughs> and that sounds perfect. You go ahead okay. and on both sides. I do. I like that idea. The fact that you're teaching people how to show compassion, and other person how to know that they are being given that compassion from the other person, especially since. We have a lot of elders in our family, you and I probably, um, and yeah. some of them might be in a hospice. And most of the times you hear cases where the health care giver is not giving that proper care to your to your mother or your father. I have heard a lot of cases of that. They get abused so quickly. So, you know, I think this would be great tips to follow along. Thank you. Yeah, that's what we found. In fact, um, our volunteers are going in and out of skilled nursing units, nursing homes, assisted living all all the time. Mm-hmm. And what it does, it creates a greater accountability on the behalf of those institutions. Because when they've got the public going in and out of their doors they, a lot, they, they tend to clean up their act. And and, and abuse, you've just got more light on the situation and, and more visibility and um, therefore more accountability. And it's it's a good thing. And, and plus, I feel, uh, as do a lot of people, that we all have a role to play in healing. We may not have medical degrees or PhDs or something like that, but everybody has something that they can do. And the thing about suffering from a, from a severe illness is that it, 
it's very isolating. You know, you can be in the same room with a lot of people and you still feel very alone because of the pain and not feeling that anybody can understand your experience. So it takes an effort to kind of build a bridge over to that other person's world and find out what's going on over there. Because you're, if you're of good health and you're in there, you're in a very different world than the person who's not in good health. The, their future is in doubt, and their hopes and dreams might have been just, just been demolished, and, you, and yours haven't. So you're in a very different place, and it takes an effort to find out, hey, well, you know, what's, it go- what's it like over there where you are? And that's, that's why you, even if you're in the same room, some people, people can still feel very alone unless that effort to connect is made. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing all these years. In fact, my wife started this program, and she's very gifted at connecting with, with patients, as are a lot of very good doctors, very good nurses, very good therapists. A lot of them have that knack for connecting with people who are in a tough spot. And a lot of them don't. So our thing was, well, can it be taught? And that intrigued me because I did not have those skills, and I freely admit that. I, I, my background's not in healthcare; it's My background's in physics. So I, I didn't have those skills at all, but I was very impressed by the people who did because they could pull off things that I didn't even believe were possible, um, like you know, connecting with people who are dying of leukemia and in tremendous pain. And then mm. 10 minutes into the conversation, they're telling jokes. And there's laughter in the room. And I'm, I was there, I saw it happen, but I'm still wondering, how the heck did that just happen? How, why right. did that person open up? You know, what, what, what did they do? And um, so Karen and I spent you know, months trying to figure out, well, what are the ingredients in these conversations that allows the patient to experience compassion. Because, you know, when we're, when we're suffering, we all hope to be treated with compassion. Everybody yeah. is, is universal. And, and so it's like, well, how do we do that? I mean, is it just for the gifted people and they can do it and nobody else can? Or, or, or is this a learnable skill? And that was really the question that we had to answer. And it was an experiment. We didn't know the answer. We, we went looking for it. And we try right. various ways right. of training. Yeah. So, and and everybody's got something to bring to the table in this because, it, you know, we're not. Everybody's had some experience of compassion or the lack of it, and they know well full well what that feels like. So they bring that to the table. So our teaching methodology is not lecture. It's not sermon. It's not an expert delivering it. It's more group dialogue, of pulling out the best in people. And then, then, then trying things, experimenting, and and coaching, and it's more like we, this apprenticeship we we do with, with especially with young people. I mean, it's a year long program, so by the end of the year, it's in their bones how to do this. It really is, and that's oh, that's, yeah, that's the approach we've taken. That, I mean, that's pretty good that you guys teach people because, in my opinion, it looks like that's hard. Either you have compassion or you don't. That's how I see it, the same way I'm a server. It's either you got the personality skills or you don't, because I, I could serve a table all day and make you smile, and another person could do the exact same thing and don't have it. So that's why I'm very shocked that you're able to even be able to teach that. But I guess, I guess when you're young, you kind of be in your own little world, so I guess you kind of have to open up, because, I mean, I, I, I'm sure everybody could witness that. When I was young, I couldn't stand it like, to be honest, if my mom would get down sometime, like, sick or something, I'd be like, oh, my God, why I got to do this? Or or that, like, I didn't have that patience like like I have now. Now, I still probably couldn't go into the medical field because I can't stand the sickness, but it takes a lot to grow into having that, that patience with especially the elder because they need that care. They need, they need to feel that comfort. But let me ask you this, Simon, how – how important is is compassion in healthcare today? It's essential. It, it, you you can't do it. Compassion is essential to well being. Right. People, I, I mean, if you depends if you want me to get 
<laughs> the science of this or, or speak to the heart of it because I can do either one. Um, but but either way, I mean, there's there's very good science now um, about the genes that turn on or off in the presence of compassion. And therefore, you know, your immune system can be in better or worse shape, whether or not compassion is present. So can inflammation in the body. It all comes down to the fight-or-flight response. And do you feel threatened or not? And, and a lot of people, when they're ill, they not only do they feel threatened because they're ill, and therefore the fight-or-flight response is kicking in, but they're in a hospital, and you feel threatened in a hospital because it's like you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you don't know if the people are going to care about you. And there's a lot of unknowns. They speak in medical jargon, and you don't understand what's going on. So there's the threat. And what compassion does is it reduces that threat because you go, oh, I've got somebody now on my side. I'm less. I'm not facing this alone. There's a huge difference between facing a challenge, especially an illness, by yourself versus having a friend by your side. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all the difference in the world, and that's why I say it's essential. Because it, And then, yes, it, it affects you biologically, too, because it reduces the threat level, and that reduces the stress hormones and the neurotransmitters, and you f- you're physically in better shape or more resilient in the presence of compassion. And that science is just starting to, to be shown. Um, but I think everybody knows from their own experience. I mean, what causes threat is the same stuff that they use in horror movies to scare you. You know, you have no control of the situation. You don't know what's coming next. You're facing it alone. There's no escape. You know, no one can hear your scream, that kind of stuff. You know, and there's no hope of it getting better. Those are the primal threats that have been identified by, um, actually, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford in his work on primates. Um, but that happens in, in healthcare. <laughs> you, you, don't, you have no control. You don't know what's coming next. You're often facing it alone. Is there any escape? I don't know. Is there any hope of it getting better? I'm not sure. You know, so if you can go in and befriend somebody, you, have, you bring all that stress down and you nourish that soul and you befriend them. And that's what's so powerful. And the other aspect of it is that compassion's a two-way street. So in the giving, you also receive. And that's what's so mm-hmm. beautiful about our, the undergraduate level, the people, the students that are learning this, they get just as much out of it as they give because they learn from the wisdom of the elders they visit with and become friends with. They, they learn the communication skills. I mean, they learn how to communicate with somebody who's about, you know, four or five times their age, who grew up in a different part of the world, often speaking a different language or believing a different faith from an entirely different culture. And that person is hearing impaired or they have dementia or they've had a stroke or something. And they still find a way to find something in common. Why? Right. This is how we do it. It's, it's more of a rite of passage than a, than a training, really. And, and, and what we found is a way to essentially accelerate the process that you talked about, how you, you said it takes a lot of growing up to, to learn some patience and things like that. And what we're simply doing is, is accelerating that process so that, you know, at around 17, 18, 19, 20, people can gain emotional maturity and gain that patience and understanding of others who are in a very different position than themselves. Um, mm-hmm. and enter the adult world and be an asset right. to it right. and be appreciated by the people that they visit. They get a tremendous amount of appreciation for the fo- from the folks that they befriend who are all alone in a nursing home. I mean, you got at least 50, sometimes 65% of the folks in the nursing homes throughout the United States have no other visitors. They, they don't have anybody. So it's that thing. If they're not only facing a very tough, prolonged illness but and aging, but they're also facing it alone. And the exactly. alone part we can do something about. So so that's what, what we're up to and, and, and it's right. really a service learning program where the young people are gaining they are learning so much about themselves, so much about life, so much about the human experience and human suffering and how to be with it in a productive way. 
um, through this volunteering, and obviously it makes them a better nurse, a better doctor, I mean, a better healthcare professional. And I, I think that is wonderful. It is because we, we, we do. We need health professionals. You have reached the mailbox for extension 113. To reach the operator, but press 0, or to leave a message, begin recording at the tone. Press 1 when finished. Simon. To continue this recording, press 1. To return to the main menu, press 8. Or, if finished, press star and hang up. Thank you. Goodbye. Technicia, can you hear me? Hi. Yes, Simon. Technicia? I can hear you. Hi, I'm yes, sorry. Simon. I had something cut off on the phone. Oh, no, that's okay. Hello. Hey. Okay. Yeah, if 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 we didn't have these technical difficulties, then it probably wouldn't be normal. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I know that's one. Yeah, thing. thanks we for understanding. I appreciate that. Oh, that is no problem. A few minutes ago, I thought something was I thought something was wrong with my phone because you know you have people hacking into things, and I was like, oh oh. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I try to hack. <laughs> but um, as we were um, as I was saying, you know. That it is great that you're actually able to teach these interns this type of method and what how to actually teach them compassion. And to me, in this field, we need health professionals who are technically competitive, but who can also demonstrate the virtues of compassion and empathy. Because I mean, I mean, changing a bedpan or taking a blood sample are not simply objective tasks, but you could do them in ways which are empowering, soothing. Or you could do them in ways which are probably demeaning and disrespectful. I can serve you just the same way as serving. I can serve you this food and then ask the way, Here, here's your order. Or I could say, Here, right. here's your order. Is there anything else I can get for you? It's always two different ways. That's why I say when people go into certain fields, it's, sometimes it's for everybody and sometimes it's not. If you if you want it easy, then maybe you need to find something else, microbiology or something. But if you don't, if you want to show the compassion, then I think this will be the right program for you. But if not, like I said, something else might maybe down the area be perfect for you. But I, I commend exactly. you that you are actually able to teach people compassion because I always thought that was hard. You can't teach people stuff like that if it's not already instilled in them, like it has to be instilled in you right then and there. Your mommy and daddy have to teach you this. But I, my hands go out to you and Karen. I say kudos that you are able to do that and I hope that the medical field become a booming field because we need that. We we need to be able to rely on the principally on empathy or compassion that our elders will be taking care of when they go in these hospitals or or anywhere on the on the nursing ward or something like that. You know, we, we have to leave our trust into these health care Hands, so we want to make sure that they are being provided the best care of all. So I say that I hope this goes nationwide and that everyone gets a taste of this. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you, Technicia. So I, mean, I mean, if people have ever wondered if um, love really has the power to heal, um, they might want mm-hmm. to take a look at our website because, they, you know, if – if they can go to, you know, adventuresincaring.org, I mean, that what's on that site are is video and stories all about the healing power of love, essentially. that That's what it's about. And you, you, don't take my word for it. I mean, listen to the, the stories directly for, in the words of, of the students who participate in this program and see its transformative effect in their lives. Um, it, it's a it's a profound thing, and I'm on, that's why I'm still doing this after 30 years because it, every day is new with this, and and you see these young people transforming before your very eyes. It's like how do you stop doing that? I mean, that's it's, it, it's just a, an amazing thing. Um, so um, yeah, that, I, I, I'm 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 excited about I, I'm I'm excited about the future. I, we've got some remarkable young people. I mean, I know there's a lot of problems in the world, and we do not have, you know, rose-colored glasses on at all. Right. But there are also remarkable young people who want to make a difference in this world and make it a better place, and we're just trying to give them the tools to do so. 
And so that that's what our organization is about. And and I know you're about making it all uh, making it a brighter day. I mean, that's that's what what we're trying to do here. And that's why I appreciate right. the, the chance right. to come on. I know, and I really appreciate that too. And also the fact that you know they're learning about compassion and to work with the elders, but also to take that compassion and to know that you will have to learn the importance of teamwork because you will have to work with other juniors and other specialisms and professionals such as nurses. Yeah. So, and if they can't attain good relationships with their colleagues or if they are despised and mistrusted, this is going to translate into a low morality and poor patient care. So all that is yeah. to well be looked upon. You don't, you don't want that negativity. But I am, like I said, I'm glad that you are shining this light, and I hope that it goes blow up for you. Now, Simon, as far as it goes with your organization, how has it evolved from teaching compassion to teaching both compassion and self-compassion? Well, again, it came out of these young people who were asking the good questions. I mean, first they asked, you know, well, it was some student nurses who said, well, compassion, you know, it's not that hard to be compassionate to nice people on a good day. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. You know, what about obnoxious people on a hard shift? You know, that kind of thing. And and so we addressed that question. We went out for about another three or four years and created a program on how do you ha- extend compassion under difficult circumstances. So that was one question. And then the next question that bubbled up out of these this group of people is, well, I want to be a nurse or I want to be a doctor. I want to do this noble work, but I don't want to burn out how do I not burn out? Because I see people 20 years ahead of me on the on the career path, and they're fried, and they're getting bitter. And how do I – I don't want to be like that. I do want to do the work. I don't want to be like that. And so that's why we, when we started to address what is essentially compassion fatigue, and at first, quite honestly, I did not even want to believe it existed, that it was a real thing. But the more we dug into it, because it was a, it was an honest question that we were asked, and we believed it deserved an honest answer. And so we went looking for people who were thriving in their careers, and they were, they'd been in their careers 20, 30, 40 years, and they were doing these tough jobs, and they were still thriving. Uh, what are they doing? And, and we interviewed them, and... and um, that our, all our videos are very candid. It's all real stuff, mostly because we can't afford to hire actors. <laughs> but it's, so we're like, okay, let's just do the very real stuff, and it, it's more authentic that way. Um, but what we found was that the folks who are in healthcare, first of all, they're in bad shape. I mean, people who work in healthcare are actually in worse health than most other occupations, um, which is ironic and, and, and tragic. Um, but they they face occupational hazards that a lot of other professionals don't face. Not only do they deal with like the exhaustion of a heavy workload, which a lot of people do in all kinds of professions, but in addition to that, they deal with the traumatization of being witness to a lot of human suffering. And that takes a toll, too. So you have these what they call trauma-informed environments in which they see a lot of heartbreak and a lot of pain on a daily basis. And, and this applies not only to health care professionals as such, but also your emergency services people and search and rescue and paramedics and fire and police officers. They, they all are often witness to these things. And that takes a toll, too. So it's a double whammy. It's the, the exhaustion of the workload multiplied by the, the traumatization of seeing people in, these bad, in this bad shape. So that's why we went down this road of like, well, how, do, how is this addressed? How do people get their heads around this, and what can they do? And what we found was, well, it's not so much about what to do, because these Folks who are in these careers, they're, they're most, for the most part, well-educated, very caring, very dedicated people, and for the most part, pretty much know exactly what they need to do to look after themselves. That's not the issue. The issue is they don't do it. They put mm-hmm. themselves last, and they're, they're always on the back burner, and their health care can wait. And, well, wait a minute. In the process, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Nurses experience more on-the-job violence than any other profession. 
you know, and, and nurse assistants get injured more often than construction workers do. I mean, it, it's a tough right. job. And, I kind of so, I mean, I did. I kind of figured that because you got to deal with somebody who might act up. You know, you got a lot of uh, probably patients who go through through, um, dementia and Alzheimer's. So, you know, I have heard that they they get scratched up, so they get furious. Because my mom, my mother had a friend, um, God rest her soul, her daughter worked in that um, field, and she slapped the elder woman. I was like, wow. You know, the first thought in my mind, you said my grandmother or my mother is, it's gonna be on if I find out you did it to my mother, like. But it really, it 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 does. It takes a lot of, it, it takes it does. It takes a lot of mental focus in that, and and I think that we have gotten so caught up. When you look at when you look at the healthcare, it's just so task oriented. Um, who chose a career in nursing because she or he wanted to make a healing connection with others, right? But many of those tasks right. are important, but. They just so focused on the task that sometimes they forget the patient because we're just busy checking off those boxes. Okay, Nick. All yeah. right, let me see. Yeah. Okay, that's that's why I love um, Kaiser Permanente. When I go, they really focus on you. They get engaged with you, ask you questions outside the box. Really, like they get that personal connection. That's that's how I see it. And, and reason why I go back to my job because my job does the same thing. When we're there, we get we have to connect. We have to get that personal connection with you. Okay, why are you here at our hotel? Why are you eating in our restaurant? What's yeah. your purpose? Are you coming back to see us? Are you a platinum guest? You know, and it's good. In one way, it's good to do that. Well, not one way. It's always good to do that because then you know me. I know you. You yeah. come back, I know your last name. Yeah. Of course, I know your last name because I got a good memory. That often, I think if sometimes a nurse or doctor just take out their little time to ask you a certain little few questions that won't kill you, the day will go right. smooth instead of just rushing. Oh, okay, you're fine. Okay, let me check that off next. All right, need to see the next person. Come on in. Like, dang, I didn't. I, I mean, you don't know what's going on with because you didn't sit down and get personal with me. So yeah, yeah, I, I right. can imagine them having the most <laughs> dangerous field though. Because I'd be scared. I'd be covered up. They'd be like, why are you in that big old plastic bag? I don't want to get sweat. And <laughs> look, Simon. No, you know, exactly. Them old people, they, them old people, like my mother, they do not cut their nails, okay? They don't cut their nails. You'd be like, ouch, long nails. And they be real, too, because my mom have long nails. So I can imagine you um yeah. getting injured. But what we're going to do, we're going to come back with Simon, because I want to know more about his organization and everything. So we're going to take a short commercial break, and we're coming back with Simon. So do not touch that dial. If you want to call in, do so. 347-426-3751 is the number. So stay tuned because you are listening to Blog Talk Radio, baby. I'm telling you, this is this is great information, and that's what we want to give to you. We're here to brighten up your day, so stay tuned. Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog Talk Talk Radio, baby. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom, but a little over a year ago, we realized she couldn't take care of herself without our help. And, well, how could I not be there for her? I had no idea how hard it would be and just what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and, even for me, ways to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics that got me started, but also information about the hurdles I was facing in this new role. I could even connect with experts and hear from others who had been in my place. I know this road we're on isn't an easy one, but I'm really happy to have the extra help for her and for me. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org slash caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. This message is brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. All right, we're back with Simon Fox, who is Executive Director of the Ventures and Caring Foundation. He's pioneered the education of the heart, and he's been doing this for 30 years, been teaching the art and practice of compassion. And that's a skill that has to be restored well-being and promotes the healing. And him and his wife's work is now recognized globally, and this is a great thing because 
you know, everybody calls them soft skills, but actually I think they're the hard skills. They're harder than just learning that technical stuff. You know, you got to really get deep down to show compassion. It takes a lot, trust and believe me, to work with somebody who who might don't have um, patience at all, but you got to give it. And you have to show that smile and you be like, uh, but you just, you just spit on me. You just threw food on me. And these are the things that you have to go through in the um, medical field. So that's what Simon, his wife, has created around the world. Now, Simon, when you do these, um, do you um, do these simulations also include, like, um, immediate feedback from their patients where they can actually see how their patients may praise them or, or score them poorly? Well, um Actually, no, we're, we're not able to do that. I wish we could. Okay. I really do. Um, but it's, first of all, you know, a lot of the folks we visit um, have Alzheimer's disease, and it's kind of hard to get feedback from somebody like that. Um, right, right. But on the other hand, but we're also dealing with a lot of the patient privacy laws. And so because we're, uh, we're a volunteer group, um, so we're not officially part of the hospital, so we're not, we can't have access to the patients and the records and do that kind of stuff. So um, the best we can do is um, we, our volunteers develop very strong connections with the people they visit. And it becomes, the re- how we can tell what's going on in those interactions is that our student volunteers don't only visit the, the, el- the frail elderly in nursing homes and also the sick and injured on, on acute care units, too, um, but they also write about it. And they, they write a journal about these interactions, and they send us that journal. And the thing about that is that I don't care how good a writer you are, you, mm-hmm. can't, write deeper than, you can't write deeper than your level of insight, in other words, if you don't have insight into a conversation, you can't put it on the page because you miss it, right? So, so we can tell their depth of insight into the conversation, and then we can coach them on that. And and if you know, and, and so you, like I said earlier, the compassion is a two-way street. It's not just one person giving and the other person receiving. There's a back and a forth, and it's getting to know one another and it's building that relationship. And we can tell by these reports from our students, is that relationship building in, in a positive, healthy, strong way, or is it just kind of superficial and not going anywhere? And, and, and we can continue to coach them on that, and they get, obviously, better and better and better as they, as they do. And that's why after a year of doing this, they've got these skills in their bones. And, and we know that because... The, the, the twenty-year-olds who volunteered with us twenty years ago, obviously, are now forty, and and they're mid-career, and a lot of them are teaching their students these very same skills because they have to deal with a lot of, like I said, a lot of suffering, a lot of tragedy and heartbreak, and it can make you, mm-hmm. if you're not careful, if you're not careful, it can make you cynical, or it can make you wooden, or rigid, or standoffish, because you've just seen this too many times. But if you engage with the patients and you hear their stories and you learn about who they are as a person, not just a patient, but their life and their hopes and their dreams and their skills and their accomplishments, you learn about that, it makes you more human and it deepens you and you become a better doctor. You become a better nurse as a result because you have just more insight and you have more wisdom about the human condition. Um, and, and, and so it deepens you, and it, it, it's, it's rewarding to you. I mean, some of the researchers use this term, exquisite empathy. And it's the, the experience of helping others to heal or improving their well-being. And the reward of that, of it, it makes it, the feeling of that, when you've really made a, a true connection with somebody, it's a powerful thing in your life. So it's not just you helping others. Um, compassion really, truly is a, is a two-way street, and it benefits both of you. So did right, that, I'm it not does. sure if I answered your question. <laughs> no. No, I, I think that, that answered it perfectly because one thing about, to me, when you go into this field, um, 
even when it, it, even when you're thinking about it all the way down to just like moving a bedside table closer, you know, when you leave out that room and you didn't move that bedpan or that bedside closer, that person felt like, oh wow, you were rude. And and at the end of the day, you have to think about it. What if that's what if that was my mother in that bed, my child? What would you want for them? You know. Yeah. So all that has to be broken down. You gotta think. What if that was you? Would you want somebody to do you the same way? So you always have to put yourself in that other person's shoes. No matter, and this goes beyond any profession that we're in, whatever profession that we're in, um, from healthcare yeah. to serving to uh, maybe being a judge. You know, you have yeah. to put yourself in that other person's shoes. What if I was there? Would I want that same treatment, you know? And I think a lot of times they don't think of that. They don't think that they're one day they're going to get down sick because you have a day where you're going to get old, and you don't even have to yeah. be old. You can get down sick in your 30s, 40s. You can still right. be young. And would you want that same treatment? Um, so if that's not right. what you want and you don't give it to somebody else now, Simon, now when we go into it, um, what are some of the problems? Faced by healthcare providers, how do your programs help them along the way? Well, like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the compassion fatigue, um, burnout—these are occupational hazards, and they're not usually talked about. Even in nursing school or medical school, they're rarely talked about. And and so, caregivers kind of naively just hit the wall. Suddenly, it's kind of like. You know, I mean, if you're going to work on a construction site, they go, you know, hey, there's some hazards. You know, wear a hard hat in case something falls, you know, that kind of thing. And, and they take and precautions are taken. Um, search and rescue guys, they take precautions. They wear protective clothing, and they're communicating with each other all the time. But nurses and doctors are, somehow are, they don't talk about the occupational hazards of being a caregiver. And they are definite ones. There's, a, you know, there's around at least six or so. And... They all like there's burnout, there's compassion fatigue, there's moral distress, there's secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, primary trauma. There's all these kinds of things when you're around this kind, doing this kind of work. And so what we're trying to do is help them deal with these occupational hazards first by simply knowing about them. And um, the this latest project we did called Oxygen for Caregivers, and I love the title because we, essentially what we're asking caregivers to do, like you do on the, like say, on the plane in an emergency, put your oxygen on first uh, so that you can make good decisions about helping others, and that's what we're trying to encourage in, in the folks in healthcare. When we produced this video, um, I was very fortunate to meet an amazing uh, firefighter down in the Los Angeles area. Um, Rob Nowachik, and he was on this search and rescue team that went to Haiti after the Haiti earthquake. He was part of an international responder group. And so we were talking to him about what he went through during these experiences, and at the end of the interview, he said, well, would you like some footage that I shot when we were there? And we said, sure, we'd love it. Anyway, this is real footage of him and his team digging a hole through a building, a four-floor building that had pancaked and flat uh, during the earthquake and trapped three people down at the bottom floor. And they were having to cut not just through the concrete, but the rebar, uh, the steel rebar in this building to try and get these people. And they were digging for like three, I think it was either three or four days, to try and rescue them. And they managed to rescue two, but by the time they got to the third person, she had died and they can bring her out, right? And we've got the footage of this actually happening. Well, not only is that a very powerful piece of footage uh, and, and shows the heroism of the search and rescue people and, and what they were really dealing with. I mean, they're digging this hole down this, through this building to rescue people, and at the same time, earthquake aftershocks are still happening. I mean, you see it in the camera where it shakes when there's a, there's a shock as they're down this dark hole trying to rescue somebody. Well, when we got that footage, it occurred to me, all the caregivers are going down a dark hole to try and rescue someone. It may not be a physical one. It may be an emotional dark hole or a psychological one or a social one or a spiritual one. But they're going down to rescue somebody 
The difference is most caregivers don't have their lifelines in place. And so whereas the search and rescue guys do, I mean, their teamwork is phenomenal. They're looking out for each other all the time. And that's why we decided to teach this in a team setting rather than solo. Because the most insidious thing about burnout is that it's isolating. People tend to drift off and be by themselves more and more and more. So the solution, obviously, is to bring them back in and let's face this together. And so that's been the essence of all our, our programs. And so that's about caregivers. It's, it's understanding that traumatization takes an effect. I mean, there's a wonderful um, teacher of uh, doctors, Rachel, Raomi, Na- Rachel Naomi Remen in uh, University of California, San Francisco. And she said, you know, the expectation that you can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and never be touched by it is about as unrealistic as expecting you that you can walk through water and never get wet. I mean, that suffering that you're around affects you. So the question is, how do you then diffuse that? How do you put lifelines in place so you can get back out of that dark hole and not end up with two of you stuck down there? Um, and that's so we developed this program. We call it the ABCs of resilience, um, and the C is the connections, which are the lifelines, the things that renew us, and being able to keep a hold of them, the things that bring us joy, the things that, and they're they're either physical, psychological, social, or spiritual lifelines. Um, that are things that reconnect you back to who you truly are. And it's easy for us to, to lose touch with that. It's, it's the, the soulful things in our life that, that, that really nourish. And so, um, I mean, there's a lot to this, to this model. It's about it's building self-awareness and it's building balance into your life and it's having these connections. Those are the ABCs. Of, of resilience and um, actually if people are interested in more detail they can go to our website and the resources section of it I've written blogs about this five antidotes to stress and the ABC's of resilience and things like that and they can find out all about that for free on the website um, and if you and I would encourage any of your listeners who are nurses or in the healthcare professionals professions excuse me take a look at what we've got here because it's designed for teams and um, it would make a big difference in, in whatever organization they're, they're working for to, to have this sense of camaraderie where we can, we can do this tough job if we face it together. So that's the kind of compassion for caregivers where they have compassion for their own suffering as well as for the suffering of others. Um, we often ask them to regard themselves as one of their own patients. You know, so if you're looking after six patients on the unit today, actually you've got seven because one of them's you. And make sure that you're looking after you just fine too. Right. So, uh, so, so that's that's what we're doing to help caregivers uh, is, is essentially build resilience and and have some protections up, some you know metaphorically some protective clothing. <laughs> you know, where, that you can wear and some lifelines to get you out at the end of the day. Um, it, it's, it's like a, a whole-person pr- approach. What we've learned is that resilience is not about excellence. It's not about impressive accomplishments, you know, I'm going to run a triathlon or whatever. What resilience is about is about wholeness because we're only as strong as our weakest link. And we've all got these parts of ourselves that are compartmentalized or we're not too proud of or things like that. And we need to re-embrace those things and bring them back in because there's that's energy out there just being left on the sidelines. And we need to bring it in and, and be whole um, because, you know, excellence is a very form of – it's a brittle form of strength, you know, where you're only as good as your last victory, whereas wholeness is – all of you, you know, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. So with that you can get your heart around that, you're that much more authentic and you're that much, you've got that much more capacity to bounce back from tough situations. Um, whereas, you, you, I mean, you see these highly talented people who have just focused on excellence to such an extreme that they've got serious personality defects in other areas that one 
move and they're off the rails, you know, and they, they've been thrown for a loop. Whereas there's other people who just handle all kinds of um, adversity and do it with honor and do it with dignity day in, day out. And um, that, those are the kind of folks I like to learn from because they're, they're the salt of the earth. Um, and, and so that's, it's that kind of resilience we try to help build in people. It's, a, it's more a deep abiding strength than, than something flashy or impressive. Um, but that's what gets you through, too. So for a long, healthy career of many years doing really good, meaningful work. Um, and, and so that's the, the kind of resilience and, and self-compassion, if you will, for, that we're encouraging in, in the caregivers, that they, that they keep themselves in the loop. And, uh, exactly. So that, yeah, that, so that's, that's our approach to it. Rather than saying there's one particular method you ought to be doing, um, people can choose the methods, the one that fits best for them. Um, but the thing is, is the choice. I mean, I love, there's a doctor called Gabor Mate, wrote a great book called When the Body Says No. Um, but he said, you know, which, whichever modality of treatment people choose, the real key to healing is the individual's active, free, and informed choice. And really that's what it comes down to, is people making better choices about their own self-care. And and we encourage like a 1% change. I mean, just don't go for anything ambitious. Just try and make a 1% change. When we first piloted the program, one of the nurses at the place we piloted at, she said, well, you know, I mean, I live in Santa Barbara. It's a gorgeous place. But, you know, you think I ever go look at the ocean? Hardly ever. It's like, what ocean is? It's, it's a mile away. And yet, you get so busy, you don't see it. And, and what this nurse did, she said, I... Every day I, I buy, bicycle to work, um, and I go right past one of the most beautiful views of the ocean. But I'm pedaling so hard to get to work on time, I never see it. So I started getting off my bike for two minutes, taking in some of the fresh air and enjoying the ocean and going back, getting back on my bike and then pedaling to, to work. And it made a difference in my entire day. Um, so it's like that 1% change, you know, making a small adjustment, you know. You know, brush your teeth for two minutes instead of 30 seconds, you know, like that kind of stuff that puts you in the driver's seat a bit more and starts to move your whole life in, in a healthier direction. I think that's that's some of the the kind of work that's required is the humble little step-by-step, but making sure even though it be slow, but sure progress towards a, towards a healthier you. So I, I hope that helps, uh, I, um That's, I mean, in the early stages of research on compassion fatigue, what it was, what it was first called, and compassion fatigue is that emotional exhaustion. It's different from burnout. Compassion okay. fatigue is you've given and given and given and given. You just don't have any more to give emotionally. Um, right. And so it's very, right. diff- it's very different from burnout, which is more about workload and exhaustion in that way. Um, compassion fatigue is more an emotional exhaustion and that uh, affects uh, caregivers. And originally, right. when, they were first, when, when they were first identified it, it was called the embitterment syndrome. And in many ways, I still think that might be a better term because it's what happens to some caregivers where there's a bitterness that seeps into the heart because you just like, oh, my God, I've done so much for all these people, and they still treat me like garbage, you know. And you get you start to get cynical or jaded. And, you know, I think the best advice I could ever give is, you know, do whatever you've got to do to keep your heart free of bitterness because that, not for anybody else, but for you because that will color and taint the, everything else in your life if you get jaded or cynical or bitter. Um, so whatever it is, whether it's playing music or prayer or football or whatever it is that puts you in your heart, you know, do that um, because it, that's essential and, and, it, and it will affect all your relationships. It will affect all of the work you do. It will, it will affect your entire life if your heart is in the right 
place. You know, I think it was Bob Hope who said, you know, if you've got bitterness in your heart, that's the worst kind of heart disease. And he's right. Uh, um, and and so the those that resentment or frustration, we have to find ways to cleanse the heart of that. Um, and and so I think that's that's the most possibly the most profound advice I could give. And yet it's very simple because what what effectively does that is is humility and simplicity and a, a sense of innocence i mean being around children you know that kind of being around small animals puppies things like that it, it, it restores something in the heart you know as of course the great works of wisdom and um so so those simple quiet moments um can can often do be the best medicine Well, I do appreciate you for these tips, and I hope everybody was able to gather these points from here on out. Um, at the moment, Simon, which organizations are using your program? Well, I mean, as, as, there's a lot of organizations throughout the country and increasingly around the world. We've got about a 1,000 hospices and a 1,000 um, hospitals, a um, couple of thousand churches, um, wow. and about... And several hundred uh, nursing, uh, several hundred nursing schools that do use our materials. Um, I mean, of course, that those are our video-based training programs, and then we've got our local um, volunteer student intern program here in the Santa Barbara area. Um, although other areas, um, Pennsylvania and Texas, have always also had our program. Um, and we're we're happy to share what we do with anybody who wants to learn how to do it. I mean, they can contact me. They can go to our website. And if somebody wants to email me, just email me, Simon at adventuresincaring.org. And I mean, I'd be happy to answer questions, send resources, point in the right direction, that kind of thing. Um, so that that's what we're up to. And I'm, I'm, what I'm very proud of is that... Um, an international group of nurse educators really recently adopted our Oxygen for Caregivers program. And uh, oh, they funny. implement... Yeah, they, they're hospice and palliative care nurses, and they are quite literally world-class nurse educators. They go over the world, they teach hospice and palliative care nurses, and they've, they're using our program as their self-care module. And last year they implemented it in throughout uh, the U.S., but also in uh, Kenya and China and Romania, um, and so and they're continuing to do it, use it this year. So we're very proud of that, and um, and and happy that that word is getting out because it's not just in the United States, but caregivers throughout the world um, wrestle with this. And I and I, I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. Everything I've just talked about is applicable not just to professional caregivers, but also to family caregivers, people who are volunteer caregivers, uh, who also deal with, with very similar things. They might not do it on a professional basis, but they're looking after their mom or their dad or their grandparents. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and they deal with very similar things. And, and what we want to do is pass on what we've learned from the professionals to, to anybody, because it's it's tough stuff is is caregiving, and it takes courage to do it. Um, so we again, we want to give people the tools to succeed um, and share what we've learned along the way. So and we're, we're and thanks, thanks, Nisha, for for um, giving me this opportunity to talk about it. Um, I, I, it's very appreciated. No, thank you, because we want everyone, as you said, home and in the hospital. We want you to have that sense of that sense of excitement and regain this part of the medical practice and to just actually just give you those tools to use within your own environment that will not only support you in terms of resilience but also allow you to better re-engage with those you are caring for inside or outside of the home. So thank you, Simon. I wish you and Karen so much in your future endeavors. Um, People, make sure you, you check out Simon. Simon, once again, give us the website where we could check you out. It's adventuresincaring.org. 
So please make sure you go to that website. If you need any further information, this is helpful for you and others around you as well. But my truth for the day before we leave this air is for everyone, for my friend Mary Ellen, is to spend time with people whose presence you find pleasant. When you spend time drawn to entertaining and engaging individuals, you will respond with overtures of friendship. Your sense of fatigue or stress will simply melt away, being replaced with energetic feelings of well-being. This enthusiasm from others is contagious and can spread through you to all you meet. Hold on to this sense of excitement as you go through your day. Today, spend some time with people whom you find pleasant to be around. Enjoy the day, everyone. Take the time to enjoy yourself, please. And I'll see you next time on the Bright Side with Technicia. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com. 